Hi, my name is Frankie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Frankie. Uh, I have a sobriety date of January 27th, 1997, and for that I'm very grateful. Um, Zach, thank you so much for sharing. I love your shares. I love how strong your, your message is, and I feel lucky to have heard you tonight. Thank you so much. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I look in the mirror, and I love the woman that I see in the mirror. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not feel that way. I, I got here when I was 26, I'm 49 now, and um, when I walked into these rooms, right before I got here, I had everything that you would think that a woman would want. You know, I had the cool job, I had a brand new car, I had a house, I had a husband, I had a boyfriend, I had <laughs> everything that you would think would make me happy, right? I walked into these rooms, and funny thing is, I walked in um, via a therapist as well who thought I might need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> go figure. And I walked in here, and I really didn't think that I needed to get sober, but I knew that there was something, there was a problem when it came to my drinking. You know, I knew that I didn't, I wasn't, wasn't good on alcohol. Um, I'm little teeny tiny, but I think that I'm really big when I'm drunk. I like to fight and I'm not really good at it, but it doesn't really matter because I just like the pain, to be super honest with you. Um, I was told when I first got here that, in, that alcohol was a symptom, and I didn't understand that at the time. Alcohol is a symptom, and that the disease had been there long before I ever put a drink into my body. I totally understand that today because take the alcohol away and my mind's still there. I'm still having the symptoms or I'm still having the problems, the thought processes that a drink so much helps me with. When I was a, a little girl, um, I grew up, uh, I had a stepfather who liked little girls, and you can do the math on that. I was abused from the time that I was two till I was 12. And I remember so vividly laying in my bed, hating myself, my mom told me that God punishes sinners, and I thought that I was being punished for something. So I tried as much to be as perfect as possible, get the best grades, do everything right so that it wouldn't get hurt anymore. And, um, and it just kept happening. And so I just, being a little girl, I logically came to the conclusion that it's me, that I clearly was worthless, and that I clearly was a piece of whatever, and then nobody cared about me. I told on him when I was 12 years old, and you might think to yourself, like, what does this have to do with drinking? It has everything to do with why I needed a drink. I needed a drink at five, you know? Um, at 12 years old, I told on him on the way home from church. My mother said, I promise you he's never going to touch you again. And I remember it was the first time that I felt like maybe I mattered, maybe I was going to be okay, and I remember thinking these feelings inside, or thinking and having these feelings inside that I, I was going to be safe, because I really, really wanted to be safe. I never felt safe. And he did not go to jail, and when they called the police, um, the police left, and then I got sent to live with another family. And I was angry, and that was just confirmation. See, I'm not even worth protecting. Nobody will listen to me. Nobody believes me. It doesn't matter what I say. I am worthless. And I walked around with my 12-year-old mind thinking how worthless I was. And everybody who would try to be nice to me or reach their hand out to me, I got angry at. Because if you're trying to be nice to me, you either A, want something from me, or B, you're stupid. You don't see me for who I am. 
I was sure that I was worthless. When I got into high school, that's when I started finding, you know, drugs and alcohol, and, and I accidentally found it, you know, um, through, I went to my first high school dance, it was the 1980s, I was dressed up like Pat Benatar, I thought I was so hot, had my first little mini skirt on and my pair of Candy's high heels, you know, and I'm marching onto this quad like I am just the little 15 year, or little 12 year old boy in a skirt, because that's pretty much what I look like, you know, but I thought I looked so hot and this guy asked me, are you sure that you're at the right school? <laughs> you know, because I look so young. And I was so offended by that, but his girlfriend's best friend saw, and she went and told her best friend, and this girl comes, gigantic tree of a woman comes to me, and she goes, talk to my boyfriend. And she beats me up and she breaks my arm. And when my arm got broken, it was like a tree branch had broken. I looked down at my arm and I looked back at her and there was no reaction, I just said, I think you broke my arm. And she said, I'll break your neck if you ever talk to my boyfriend again. And I had no idea who her boyfriend was. I was just, okay. But when I stood up and held my broken arm in my hand to go find the security guard, um, it wasn't like she had done anything wrong. It was that she found out who I was. And I deserved that. Every pain that I had ever gotten when I was younger, I thought that I brought it on myself. I thought I deserved it. And when they took me to the hospital, the doctor said these magical words to me. He said, I'm going to give you something that's going to make you feel better. <laughs> and he did. He gave me codeine, and it did nothing for the pain in my arm, but what it did in my head was something I had needed my whole life. I remember taking those pills and laying in my bed as a teenager and thinking to myself, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever felt in my entire life. I don't feel any anger, I don't feel any pain, I don't feel anything. And that was when the race was on. That's when I knew for the rest of my life that I had to find that. And that after the cast was off, I'm like, no, it seriously it hurts, it hurts. And the doctor's like, the cast has been off for weeks, you know, like, there's, I'm not giving you any more pills. You know, but it hurts, it does not hurt anymore, you know. So I was pill seeking at that time. Um, I had to find the next best thing. And I went from being a perfect straight-A student on the, um, you know, on the honor roll and did everything right to finding people who understood me. And I was a punk rocker. Back, I, I went and I met the punk rockers. I became a punk rocker. And I found my family. I found people who would protect me and care for me and who were there for me no matter what. I felt like I had finally found my people. And, I mean... It was great. I'm just going to be honest. It was great for a little bit of time. I felt home and I felt safe too because that you don't just fight one. You, you fight them all, you know. And so when I walked around, I was mouthy. I could do whatever I wanted. I had this gigantic ego stuffed inside this little teeny tiny body, you know, and I was larger than life. And eventually, it, it, all of the alcohol and everything didn't work anymore. I, felt my, I found my first higher power. His name was Michael, and he was my penis in the sky, saved me for everything, you know. Um, he was going to save me from everything. He was my higher power. And I dated this guy, and he was much older, and uh, we stole motorcycles together. We stole cars together. Um, we sold drugs together. We did everything that was so much fun to some little kid who has no clue. But he also beat me because, see, that's what girls like me do. 
I had no self-esteem and I didn't think I had any self-worth. So any guy that treated me well, I left him because he's stupid, right? He clearly doesn't know who I am or he's weak or whatever. That was the mindset here. And I found that guy who beat me. And when I say he beat me, I mean he beat me senseless for the next couple of years. When I was 18 years old, I was strung out on, uh, on speed and cocaine and alcohol and no sleep and I was exhausted. I remember laying on my couch and rolling over onto the floor and crawling to the kitchen to make myself a cheese sandwich with mayonnaise, you know, because also we didn't have anything at all. And I would eat that and I would crawl back to the couch and I would lay there and I would just wish that I could just feel better. And then once the drugs came, I felt better, you know. Um, but I got to a point when I was 18 that I hit a bottom and I didn't want it anymore. I had gotten arrested. I had not said anything to anybody, so I was, you know, I was trustworthy, and everybody came to me and brought me whatever I wanted. Um, I'm trying not to sound like an egomaniac here, but it's really hard not to because it's just ingrained so deeply in me, but I was very cool at the time, or they thought I was cool, right? I was the queen of the nest and, and you know, so anyway, um, I decided, looking around myself, that this is not what I wanted anymore in my life. It just, even though it was working, it just wasn't working. And my boyfriend got arrested for, um, for stealing cars, and he got pinned with the whole thing. He was the head of the ring, and he got pinned, and they let him out of jail. And while he was in jail for that three days, some kind of clarity happened. And I don't know how it happened. I didn't pray for anything. I just think that God, who I thought hated me so much, didn't hate me. And when he was gone, I had people come to me and say, why are you doing this? Why are you with this guy? Why are you putting yourself through this? Why do you choose this? And those were the words that got me. Why do you choose this? And it was like, I don't. Yes, I do. I choose this. When he got out of jail, I was terrified to break up with him. I literally thought he was going to kill me. He told me, if you ever try to leave me, I'll kill you and I'll kill your family. And I was terrified, but I just couldn't do it anymore. So he got to my house, and he walked up, and he said, um, how are you? And I said, I don't want to do this with you anymore, and I'm breaking up with you. And he s laughed. He said, I don't think you get this. He, and I'm sorry for cussing, but he said, you'll always be my bitch. He said, I will kill you before I ever let anybody else effing have you. And a split moment went through my mind, and I looked at him and I said, please, kill me. Do it. Put, it out of, put me out of my misery. Please. And I meant that. And he obviously didn't kill me because I'm standing here today sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. But what did happen that night changed my life. He went home and he came back about 11 o'clock at night and we were having a yay, she broke up with Michael party. And he walked through my door and he threw the door open and he had the craziest look in his eyes. And he walked up to me and he said, I love you, Frankie. I hope you're happy. Here, watch this. And he pulled a gun out and looking me in the eyes, he put the gun to his temple and he pulled the trigger. And it was, I needed a drink more than I had ever needed a drink in my entire life. Alcohol became my savior at that time. I was too afraid to do drugs because I was afraid if I did any drugs that I would kill myself. And my mom and everybody, it happened in our house. And I didn't want to put them through anymore. I had gone back to live with my mom by that time. I just didn't want to bring any more in. 
And, um, and I was a broken little person, to be honest with you. I, uh, I would lay in bed and I would cry, and then I couldn't cry, and then I would cry, and then I couldn't cry. And I didn't know what was happening around me. I have friends that I know now, and my friends have told me, yes, you used to walk from one end of the town to the other end of the town. And she would drive up and she would pull over and say, hey, do you want to ride? She said, Frankie, you would just look at me with this blank look on your face like you didn't even know what I was saying. And that's the way I existed for a while. It was just this empty shell of a person. I ran away from home and ran away from home and left home. I went and I lived on the streets of LA. Um, I was connected with some people down there who were my friends. And we went and we saw punk rock shows together and um, we slept where we could. And that was okay for me. I did not feel any emotions past just devastation, you know? And when I would drink, I could go to sleep. And when I drank a lot, I could stay asleep. And when I didn't drink a lot, I would wake up screaming. I would wake up, I had nightmares all the time. And um, I needed more and more and more and more and more alcohol. I am living proof that it doesn't matter what size you are. Alcohol stops working and you just got to keep going. And I can put down a lot of alcohol when I need it. Um, I tried to fix myself in a lot of different ways. I tried to fix myself with, uh, I had a child when I was 19 years old. And you know, I want to stand up here and be like, I'm 22 years sober, listen to how healthy I am. It's not. So I had a child at 19, and what did I do with that child? I gave that child away. And I gave him away to his grandmother. And the interesting thing is, I've realized now how, how specific and masterful God works. Because when I gave my son to this woman, she had seven years in this program called Alcoholics Anonymous, which whatever, that's good for her. But she was such a nice lady, and she always, she had nothing but unconditional love for me, no matter what I did. And I just didn't understand that. How could a person like that have such unconditional love for such a piece of whatever like me, right? When I gave her my son, she gave me a book. And I loved to read books, right? She knew I loved to read books, so it wasn't strange she gave me this book. So I read this blue book from cover to cover, right? And when I handed it back to her, I said, oh my God, that is such a good book. I mean, too bad it doesn't apply to me, but God, it's such a good book, you know? And she goes, honey, if you ever want this book back, you just let me know. And I thought that was the weirdest thing to say to me, because I've already read it, you know? But I said, okay, thank you, you know, and I, I really, I looked up to this woman, and what this woman had brought to me as a non-member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but clearly an alcoholic, was love. And the first tradition says, personal recovery depends upon AA unity. I wasn't even a member of AA yet, but she understood that there needed to be a unity. There needed to be a bond. And I was 19 at the time, or 20 at the time that I gave my son away. And I went and I did it right next time. I married a guy that I could beat up, and so he couldn't beat me up. I married him within um, three or four months of being with him, you know, and got him into, you know, we're going to get married. And I thought, and it's funny because even though she handed me this book and I read this book and I'm not an alcoholic and it doesn't apply to me, I was always thinking about my alcohol, my, my consumption, my intake, how much am I drinking, you know, 
and I thought, if I got married, I will be a respectable woman, and I won't drink because my husband won't let me, right? So I got married, and then it just, I destroyed everything because I was 21 and he was 19, and um, went to the bar every single night, and then I thought, oh, you know what, if I have a child, then I won't drink anymore. And so here's what I did. And I, let, me, let me paint this picture clear for you. I created hostages who would have to love me. I brought children into this world for my selfish reasons, right? By the time I was 26 years old, I had been fired by enough jobs because of my alcoholism. I mean, I thought I was doing it smart because I was a, a cocktail waitress and I was a musician. And so, like, you know, you're supposed to drink, right? Well, not when you knock out the owners of the bar or, you know, those kind of things. So I, my final job, I like get, not, I get kicked out of the bar, I get 86 from the property, I get fired from the job that I have there, and then I went to my therapist and I'm sitting there telling her how terrible these people are and how terrible they treat me because I am a professional victim by this time, right? They are all so terrible, and can you believe the bar owner tried to touch me, so I punched him, and I knocked him out, right? My therapist just said, you ever thought about going to Alcoholics Anonymous? And I was like, no, why would I go there? And she goes, you just, I would, I would go try it out and see if there's anything there that you like, any, you know? And I thought, well, all right, because I trusted this lady, because the lady who had given me the blue book referred me to this lady. and. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I, I don't even know how, and it's funny because the night before I went to see her, I landed in my knees, on my knees in my front yard, and I was screaming at God in the middle of my front yard, in front of the whole neighborhood. I don't like me. I don't love me. Everybody keeps telling me you do, and if you do, you need to help me, you know? And then the next day she tells me, go to AA. And I don't even know how I met the guy who took me to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and he doesn't remember how he met me either, but somehow God orchestrated me a ride from somebody I didn't know to an AA meeting. And I walked into this AA meeting, and I sat down, and um, they had these elections or whatever, and they're like, we need a secretary. And I was like, ooh, you know, I could do that. Like, you know. <laughs> and then they're like, um, how long have you been sober? And I didn't need to get sober, but I hadn't done drugs since 1988, so, and this was uh, 97, it was in January of 97, and I was like, eight years, and they're like, all right, you know, so, so they make me their secretary, right? I am just a spun newcomer, but now I have a purpose, right? So every week I'm going to get there, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be their secretary because I'm going to help these people out, right? Um, and I have such great advice because I'm a know-it-all, you know, so, and, and I'm so smart, and I've been reading self-help books since I was 17 years old, so I could just tell all these people how to do this. So I show up, and I'm their secretary, and, um, and they didn't fire me. I know that every one of them figured it out. <laughs> every one of them. And um, so the first 90 days, I was the secretary, and I showed up, and they told me, you got to get a sponsor if you're going to be a secretary. So I got a sponsor, and then... Um, they're all, you're going to need a big book. And I was like, what's a big book, you know? <laughs> and they're like, it's this blue book. And I was like, oh. So I called the lady, and I go, hey, you remember that blue book you gave me a couple years ago to read? She said, yeah. I go, I think I need that book back now. And she gave me that blue book, and it was her big book. 
and I still have that book to this day. It is falling apart. I have written so much in it. Anyone who's seen my book, it's, it's sad, you know, but I just can't seem to, it's my book, you know, it's my lifeline. But um, I stayed around for 90 days, and then uh, I had this guy who looked at me one day, and he goes, you know, I have a resentment against you. And he was a good friend, and I thought, how could you have resentment against me? I mean, I'm perfect, right? I'm perfect, I'm of service, I'm a secretary, I'm this, I'm that, you know, like, why are you, why do you have a resentment? And he looked at me, he goes, I know that you have not been sober for eight years. He goes, and I think it's pretty shitty that I have three years of sobriety and I had to work and earn every single day of that sobriety. And you're walking around with this NA loophole in your head thinking that you can just say you're sober because you haven't done drugs. And it really hit me for some reason. I was like, I wanna, I wanna own my sobriety too. Because by that time I had earned 90 days. He goes, and I said, well, I don't know what to do now because everybody thinks I'm eight years sober. He goes, nobody thinks you're eight years sober. <laughs> so, so I went and I told the truth. I took a 90-day chip, and it was the most freedom I had ever felt up until that point because the truth will, sh will, will set you free. And that was great, and you're only as sick as your secrets, and that was great and the secrets were gone, and the truth was there, and some girl walked up, she goes, oh my God, thank you so much for telling us that, because I thought if that's what eight years looks like, I don't know if I want to do this, <laughs> you know? So my lies had been affecting other people, but once I got there, you know, I just dove straight in, and you know, I had to go to women's meetings, and I'm not a fan of, I was not a fan of women's meetings. My first women's meeting, and my first, like, and it's, here's the funny thing. At 90 days of sobriety, I lost everything. And the only thing I was left with was my two little girls and me. No car, no home, no boyfriend, no husband, no nothing. And I thought, oh, this is how you do me, God? I finally get honest, and, and you, you have this all happen? But see, I didn't understand the magic of God. And I didn't understand the magic of problems at that time either. And what I found out is that God didn't do anything to me. He removed everything between me and him. Because I thought, if I have a car, I'll be okay. If I have a house, I'm going to be okay. If I have a job, I'll be okay. God removed everything. And then I still had to be of service. Back in the day when I got sober, um, we had to wash coffee mugs by hand. You know, so I'm washing coffee mugs and I'm washing ashtrays because we sat inside of the rooms and we smoked and you couldn't see the, net, the other person across the room because there was so much smoke, you know. And I cleaned up after and I thought, oh, now I'm just a maid, you know. It was very hard for me to feel gratitude when everything had gone. But I went to this first women's meeting and my sponsor was like, you're going to meet me at this women's meeting tomorrow. And I was like, ugh. Okay, fine, I'll meet you at this woman's meeting. Because the one thing that I heard over and over again is get a sponsor, do everything that they say, whether you agree with it or not. And I was like, all right, fine. I'm gonna do this AA thing. I'm gonna do it for a year and I'll do everything they tell me if I agree with it or not. And then I'll see if it really works and if it's for me, right? I had no gratitude, nothing. I had no house, I had nothing. And my children, I felt so bad that I was their mother. I felt so bad that they were stuck with me as their mother. And um, I just was like, God, listen, I don't know really how to be grateful. And I don't really know what that feeling feels like, but I, I need you to help me. And it was the second time I just said, help me. 
And that day I got this check from my temp job, because I had gotten hired as a temporary for just a week, you know. Temp job, they brought me a check for $200, and this guy at, the work, at my work, he must have looked at me and gone, hmm, she needs some help. So he walks up and he goes, hey, listen, I know that you don't have a car or anything, and I know that I heard you say you don't have any money or any food. He goes, what if I take you out to lunch? I'll take you by a bank and you can cash your check. He goes, and then after that, he goes, I just got to stop by my brother's work if you're willing to go along for the ride. I was like, all right, cool, you know, thank you. And so right after I say, help me, and I'm praying, I literally would go in the bathroom and, and pray and then run back out to my desk and then go in the bathroom and pray because I was crawling out of my skin. And I went in there and... Uh, or I went into his car with him and went and got $200 cash, even, and he bought me a lunch, and I, was, I felt a little bit of gratitude for that lunch, you know, because it didn't take out the money, and I wanted to get my daughters some food, because we had been just, I had been bumming change and feeding them that way. And um, when we went to his brother's work, I walked in there, and by the way, I was living at a homeless shelter at this time, and my room had two set, or three sets of bunk beds. My daughters and I slept on the bottom of one bunk bed. They were smoking crack in my, uh, in my, um, right outside the door of my room, and it was really hard to be, to feel safe there. So I go in there and I'm standing at his brother's work and it happens to be a car auction. So he's talking to his brother, so I walk around this car auction. And I see this car, it has a K-Rock sticker on the back and it had keys, it listed keys, start, stops, you know, and I was like, ah, start, stops. And I was like, does the radio work? Yeah, the radio works. I'm like, oh my God. So I thought, you know what, it's probably better for me if I, it, it, well, I walked up and I watched them haggling on this car. So they started the auction on this car and it opened with 20 bucks. And I was like, 20 bucks, 20 bucks, I got 20 bucks. I had $200 in my pocket, I got 20 bucks. And then um, these Hispanic gentlemen does something else. And basically we haggle all the way up to, or not haggle, we bid all the way up to $120, right? And I'm, I don't understand Spanish very well, but I'm sure that what the guy said was, dude, look at this chick. She like clearly needs this car more than we do, you know, because then they gave me the car. So then I have this car for $120. I paid for it. It was in my name, and I was like, it has a heater in it. I'm going to just use some blankets, and I'm going to sleep in the car with my daughters tonight, and I'll just get up, and I'll turn on the heater, and then when it gets warm, I'll turn the car off. <laughs> And, um, and that was my plan. And when I got back to my work, I got on my knees in front of uh, my desk this time and I said, God, I know that I don't deserve any of this stuff. <laughs> I just want to say I'm so grateful because we can be safe tonight. I know I don't deserve anything more, but if you could please do me a favor and help us to get a place to live, I'd really appreciate it because I may deserve this, but my kids don't. And. Um, I'm so sorry. It just like hit me how strong and how how much I've gotten from this program. I'm so sorry. Um, so uh, my boss walks up and he leaves a newspaper. He talks to me. And he leaves a newspaper on my desk, and he walks away with this from the newspaper and. I'm sitting there, and it was right after I had prayed. He came up, and then he left. He left his newspaper. And before I went to give it to him, I looked down, and in big capital letters in the middle of the page, it said, Sober Children Welcome. 
And I thought, oh my gosh. So I called the phone number and I said, is two children too many? And she said, no, honey, two children is just enough. And I said, can I come see you? She goes, yeah, but you've got to be here by this time. And it was a bit of a travel, but I had a car. So I said, okay, I can make it by that time. And so I drove this car that blew so much smoke out the back that I couldn't see behind me, so proudly picked up my kids, went over there, you know. And I sit there and I talk to this lady for about 45 minutes to an hour. And by this time, the homeless shelter is closed. I know I'm going to sleep in the car with my kids. And when I was about to leave, she goes, you know, honey, I really like you. She goes, and I would really like to offer you the room, um, but I'm going to need at least $80 cash to let you move in here. And I stood up, and I put my hand in my pocket, and I unfolded four $20 bills, because that's what I had left, and I handed it to her. And I went and I laid down in my bedroom that night with my children, and I held them, and I prayed, thank you so much. And I knew what gratitude felt like. I didn't have any money left, <laughs> but I knew what gratitude felt like. And I told my sponsor about that, and she goes, you show up to this women's meeting tomorrow, and you tell these women what, what God did for you. And I showed up, and, and like I said before, I, I, there's an ego here, and the, the, dis, um, the steps kind of displace the ego, but it's always there. And at this time, I did not want to say that. Um, I didn't want to tell anybody this stuff, because I didn't want anybody to know what I was going through, that I was homeless and all these things. And she goes, these people need to hear the truth and see how God works. She goes, and at the end of your share, you're going to tell them if anybody has some money to let you borrow, that you can borrow the money and you'll pay them back. And I was like, oh. But I did it. I shared, and at the end of my share, I broke down, as I was saying. If anybody has $10, because I knew back in those days you could get a loaf of bread, peanut butter, and jelly, and put gas in your car for $10. Gas was cheaper then. And, um, and I was so mortified that I had shared that, that as soon as I was done sharing, I ran into the bathroom. And, um, and I cried. And when I walked back out into the room, there were 117 $1 bills sitting on my chair. And the reason why I know this is because this old-timer lady, Betty, grabbed my arm and she said, you count that and you tell me how much these bitches gave you. <laughs> <laughs> so here I was. I had a full tank of gas, food. I bought pillows. I had felt this magic happen. And I'm not saying it was the money. It was the women so ready to give me their hand. And I felt so strongly inside, you know what? That's what I want. Someday I want to be the person that can reach out my hand and help somebody else. Someday I want to be the person that can loan somebody $5, you know, loan somebody $20. Um, I, I got loved and taken care of by this program. And I am so grateful for it. I've, I want to touch on the steps. Because I'm going to tell you something. When I walked in here, I was angry. Matter of fact, an old-timer told me, I have never seen an angrier person than you. Here God hated me. Here I, all these things went wrong. And that's what I thought my life was going to be. But as I surrendered a little more and a little more, I found the gifts that started coming. And the gifts was not the money. It was not the car. It was not the house. The gift was safety and peace. An even bigger gift than that is I realized that I hadn't thought about taking a drink in a long, long time. I thought about sleeping in my car with my kids. I thought about doing this or doing that, but I had not thought about a drink. And it confused me and it excited me all at the same time. I was like, I need more of this. So I dove into those steps and I found out that 
you know, whether or not I'm drinking, if I'm in my disease, my life is unmanageable by me. It doesn't take the alcohol. It's if I'm sober and I'm not working this program, my life is unmanageable. I worked my first step and my second step, and that second step, it was clear. A power greater than myself had restored me to sanity because I didn't need to drink anymore. I didn't even think about it. And then the third step, turning my will and my life over to the care of God, it wasn't, God, give me this, and I'll do this. It was, God, whatever you want to give me. And that's what I found out about faith, too. Reading the book, the book says either God is everything or God is nothing. Back in these days when I was going through all these problems, I thought, this is terrible. What happened to me as a kid was terrible. What happened to me with my boyfriend was terrible. These are terrible stories. And eventually, through working my steps, I found gifts in every single tragedy that I'd ever experienced. My fourth step, 185 names. A lady sat for eight hours and listened to me talk about it. And at the end of it, it was the first woman who ever said, you deserved better than that, but it was still your choice. But you deserved better. And I cried and she held me. And it was the first time I ever got held by anybody crying. And I didn't feel like I had to stop or pull away. I just got to be me and be broken. I no longer had to walk around pretending like I'm tough or I'm cool. None of that stuff matters. I learned that there's love here, unconditional love. I have a home group. My home group is also the Wild Bunch Wednesday nights. And that home group taught me how to be a mother and a woman and a self-respecting member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it taught me humility. And I used to think humility was this. But humility is not being any more or any less than you truly are. I had to come up from my ego, and I had to come down from my ego, and I had to just become just another member of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was newer for the first God, decade and a half, it was service, 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 service. And I found lately that service has kind of tapered off, and I start to feel icky. So now I'm remembering the basics, work my steps, clean house, work with others, be of service, reach my hand out. And you know what also is really, really important that I don't know that anybody ever told me, but they did show me, is that every single person in Alcoholics Anonymous, regardless of how annoying they are, or how hopeless they are, has value. Because we're always learning from each other. We are the teachers and we are the students. I love what the life that I live is today. I'm, I love my home. I'm married to a man who loves and respects me and he's absolutely amazing. We were in a band together and we met in music and, and we both have been together now for 13 years. He's sober 11 years now. First two years were not fun. Um, my children are grown. My son, I made amends to him when I was 19 years sober. My son does not want to talk to me, and that is his right. And I don't tell him anything else. I just tell him, I love you, and if you are ever ready to hear me, or talk to me, or let me in, I will be here with my arms open. That's all I'm allowed to say, because just because I'm uncomfortable with his feelings doesn't mean that he has to be. I have grandchildren. I'm just crazy in love with them. I lead the life that I never could have imagined for myself. 
And had I orchestrated all of this and done it my way, I might have a good life in Alcoholics Anonymous. But once I let go and just said, okay, God, tell me, who needs help? What do I do? Life got, be got better. I love the fact that I got invited here to speak. I love the fact that I got to hear Zach speak. I feel like his message is so incredibly strong. And the funny thing is, Zach and I, we love each other, and we also butt heads, you know, in our views. But I look at him and I see the value of everything that he does, and I watch him help all the members of AA that he does, and he is a lifesaver. And I look out at everybody here, and what I see are lifesavers. Thank you.